0: Hey there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. I am so glad you press play. If you're interested in the law, especially constitutional law, the Supreme Court and gun policy, Then this is the episode for you, because my next guest is one of the 20 most cited law professors in judicial opinions today, and his scholarship has been cited in landmark Supreme Court cases on the First and Second Amendments. But before I introduce you to Professor Adam Winkler, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you a sneak peek inside the episodes and the guests we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just go to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org the number for and the sign up box is right there. And while you're on the homepage, I want to invite you to scroll down a little bit where you'll see a whole bunch of boxes that are organized by career. So if you're interested in banking and finance or communications and PR, just click on those boxes. Or if you're passionate about becoming an engineer or breaking into tech and IT, then click on that box. There are dozens of career options to choose from and hundreds of professionals episodes that you can binge on. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Professor Adam Winkler, a specialist in American constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and gun policy. He's also a professor of law at UCLA Law School. His latest book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, was published in 2018 and was a finalist in, get this, for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the American Bar Association's Legal Gavel Award, the California Book Award, and received the Scribes Award. He's also the author of Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America, which won no awards, but was the subject of a question on the very popular game show Jeopardy. In addition to writing in all the top newspapers, he is also a frequent commentator about legal issues and has appeared on a whole bunch of television news programs. He also served as co editor of the Encyclopedia of the American Constitution, the second edition. Professor Winkler, Adam, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your cappuccino and ready to go?
1: I am, and thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it is a pleasure to get to speak to you. I can't wait to get into your books. But before we do that, I'd like to start by getting a better idea for our young listeners of what a law professor does on a day-to-day or on a week-by-week basis. For example, what courses are you teaching this semester? And, And I should say it's the fall of 2019 and what's involved in managing your
1: coursework? The primary functions of my job really are threefold. A law professor's three main tasks are scholarship, teaching, and service. So let me break those down. Scholarship is the research and writing of scholarship, of scholarly articles or of books generally published in law reviews or by university presses that talk about the law and analyze some particular set of legal problems and come up with creative or innovative solutions or innovative and creative ways of understanding the nature of those problems. Scholarship is really key if anyone wants to be a tenure-track law professor at you know research university today. And second is teaching. Some people think that as a professor, the primary thing you do is teach. But in fact, at UCLA, as most research universities, we want to promote research as our main goal. And so teaching is an important part of what I do, but it's in some ways secondary to my scholarship. We sometimes say that someone who is a mediocre teacher but a great scholar will stick around. But someone who's a bad scholar and a great teacher probably won't last long. You have to be a good scholar. So teaching is nonetheless still an important part of my job. I teach classes. You asked me about the semester. A- any given year, I'll teach four or five classes at the law school and divide it up uh, between a couple of semesters. And then the third thing that I do is service. Any uh, The law school needs to be run, right? It's an institution that has organizational needs, and we rely on the law professors to do a lot of those organizational things. So I serve on governance committees at the law school, for instance, to try to identify new and promising people to hire, or a committee to review applicants for admission to the law school, or a committee that helps our students get clerkships or jobs. So the three primary functions of a law professor, as I said, scholarship, teaching, and service to the university.
0: What's your favorite part?
1: Well, I love to do scholarship, but that can also be kind of isolating because so much of the scholarship that you do is very much sitting in a room alone with the computer, writing and rewriting and editing and thinking and reading. And I like that part, but it can be isolating. There's nothing better in my job than... Those moments when I'm in the classroom teaching students and they have that kind of aha moment where something that was unclear becomes clear and they kind of get a new understanding about how the law works. That's always a much more promising moment because there's that instantaneous award that you get from a student who has connected with you and learned from you. So how would you describe your teaching style? And I
0: ask this, especially for young listeners who may want to become law professors one day or teach the law in some way or another.
1: Well, I think my teaching style really has developed over the years. I think when I first started teaching, I was a little insecure in the classroom. And I think as a result, I was a little bit more defensive of my position as a professor and as my position as an expert in the class. And so I tended to be maybe a little bit more domineering in the classroom than I might be today. Today, I'm much more confident and comfortable in my role as a law professor. And I think my teaching style is designed to. Really welcome the students, open up the discussion for the students to be engaged and be involved while at the same time providing them with the level of expertise and understanding and depth and sophistication of knowledge on the issues that of course the students can't be expected to have. And I'm the only one in the classroom who's, who studied constitutional law for 30 years and be able to be able to bring that knowledge to those students is very rewarding.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. The fact that you felt insecure in the classroom when you first started, because certainly in my case, now I'm on my fourth career, when I was a journalist, each time I moved into a new role, I felt very insecure, not really as confident as I would later become after I had been on a particular beat for a while. And I never asked for help or identified a mentor. That I could go to to get advice. And I can imagine for a professor of any kind, in your case as a law professor, you are taught the law, but you're not taught how to teach. So, how did you decide how you wanted to teach? And as your teaching evolved, kind of settle into a particular style?
1: It's a great point that you make, and I appreciate your appreciation of my statements of insecurity. To just refer back to that one more time, uh, just this past year, you mentioned that my book, uh, We the Corporations, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And I went to New York where they have this big ceremony, a black tie affair with thousands of people in this big room where they give the awards out. And as I'm sitting there in this room, and all I'm thinking while I'm in that room is, what if everyone finds out that I'm just an imposter? What if everyone realizes at some point during this event that I don't deserve to be here, that my book is not good enough to be one of the books nominated for a National Book Award? And I think the lesson that I took from that was that even when you have great success in your profession, insecurity comes with it. I think that insecurity can actually be a very healthy thing to have in life, so that you don't get overconfident or cocky in what you do. And so, I tell people, as you get older, you'll find that almost everybody is a little bit of an imposter. And not to say that they're trying to fool anybody. Even someone who claims to have great expertise, there's still plenty. They don't know. And so I think it did affect my teaching style. I found it less important over time to insist the students see the world the way I see it, and more open to how they see the world, and to recognize that, The issues that we're dealing with in constitutional law class, for instance, many of them are very open-ended. And to instead of trying to give everyone a sense of security that comes with saying, hey, this is about X and not about Y, Z, or anything else, to come to recognize that actually these problems are often about X, Y, Z, and a whole bunch of other things, and that that openness becomes more interesting, even if it provides less solid foundation for moving forward sometimes.
0: Well, once again, I want to thank you so much for sharing your most recent experience with a sense of insecurity or imposter syndrome. I mean, even in your career, you still have that feeling is just, I think it should be of great comfort to our young listeners because the fact is you can be a 50-year-old person and still feel after having decades of experience under your belt that maybe you're not good enough. And I think I have to say that comes with people who tend to be very type A and overachievers. And I hope you don't feel that way. I hope you don't experience that. I myself have experienced it every step of the way in my career. And I have to share this story with you, Adam, and with our young listeners that comes from an interview that I did with the president and publisher of Simon and Schuster Adult Publishing, Jonathan Carp. He shared the best career advice he'd ever gotten came when he was 22. He was a summer intern at the Washington Post, and he was interviewing a very creative man by the name of Rupert Holmes, who was working on a musical that was about to premiere on Broadway. He was the composer, he was the lyricist, and he was the book writer of the show. And Jonathan asked Rupert if he was confident about his prospects, and he said, Oh, certainly not. I'm totally faking it. And furthermore, I think everybody is faking it. And the fact is, the musical that he was writing at the time was The Mystery of Edwin Drood. It went on to win four Tony Awards. I share this, and I so appreciate your candor, Adam, because I just want our young listeners to understand that all of these feelings are natural. And that doesn't mean that somehow or another, you're going to be a failure. You won't be. It's going to give you your edge if you feel that way.
1: Well, that's terrific. And I agree. I think actually what I've seen in my career is that it's the people who are the most confident who think that they are the smartest, they have the best scholarship, they're the best teachers. They tend to be the worst, not the best. That it's important to go forward and have confidence in yourself but you should never go forward and think that you're better than other people or that what you're doing is somehow really, really special that no one else could ever do. A sense of humility is important for success in almost every area of life, I think.
0: My goodness, I just wrote a note to myself about the importance of being humble. So I think that is exactly what you were saying about a sense of humility. Adam, what was it about the Constitution that captivated you, that made you want to specialize in this
1: particular topic? Well, of course, the Constitution deals with so many fundamental issues. I remember I went to law school, not certain that I wanted to be a lawyer, not certainly not with any idea that I wanted to be a law professor. But I went because I thought it was a good place to get a good education. I thought it might open up some doors for me. I was a little lost. at but when I was in constitutional law class, I really found myself invigorated. I found myself wanting to learn more, I found myself studying outside of class issues that weren't even assigned in class. I found a passion for it. And what was it about it? I don't know. For me, it was really maybe a mix of uh, constitutional law is always a mix of our most fundamental values, a little bit of political theory, and a lot of history. And those just tended to be things that really really attracted me. The idea that I could study constitutional law and come to a better understanding of our most fundamental rights was really attractive. What do you think
0: would surprise our listeners about this document, which, by the way, is what, about 250 years old?
1: So many things would surprise people. I always have my students on the first day of constitutional law class read the Constitution. And when they read it, they're often surprised because we think of the Constitution as primarily about establishing our individual rights. And that's certainly one of the things that the Constitution does. But that part of the Constitution was, in some ways, almost an afterthought, that the main heart of the Constitution really is about setting up the federal government, about establishing the three different branches of government, the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, and trying to divvy up power between those three branches. And... Madison, one of the main writers of the Constitution, believed that you didn't need a Bill of Rights to identify particular liberties that individuals would have, but that liberty would be preserved simply by the balance of powers between the three branches of the government. And so when my students read the Constitution, they're often surprised that how little the constitution says about the important issues of the day, whether there's a right to healthcare or whether there's a right to education, whether there's a right to some kind of safety net if you're unemployed and can't afford uh, afford food. And the kinds of things that you might include in a modern constitution just simply aren't there in our constitution. And so one of the surprising things that happens with students is they realize how much the constitution needs to be created or constructed by people, judges in particular, rather than being provided to us by the founders 250 years ago.
0: By constructed, do you mean whether they would have a narrow or broad interpretation of the Constitution?
1: Yes, but also what are particular rights that are protected? You know, almost any right that you can identify beyond freedom of speech and freedom of religion, a lot of the rights that you might want are seek are not rights that are included in the Constitution because it was written so long ago. And so when I say constructed, so much of our modern constitutional law has been created by judges trying to come up with the best understanding of the vague and ambiguous and, let's face it, not very many words of the Constitution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As I said in the introduction, your latest award-winning book is entitled, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. What is it about and why did you want to take on this topic?
1: Well, I wanted to take on this topic because it's become such a big issue in American law and American politics. In 2010, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Citizens United that corporations had the same free speech rights as individuals and could spend unlimited amounts of money on campaign ads. And when that case came down, I knew that was a project that I wanted to get involved with to help people understand why that case had happened and what was the backstory behind it, not just in terms of the litigation that led to the Supreme Court case, but the 200 years of case law that had gradually extended rights to corporations. When we think of civil rights movements in America, we think about the civil rights movements for racial minorities or for women, for the disabled, for LGBT communities but corporations have also been pursuing civil rights since the earliest days of America, and in many ways have been more successful than minority groups or women.
0: How is this topic relevant for our young listeners, many of whom are still in college, others of whom are just beginning their careers?
1: Well, I think the subject matter of my book, We the Corporations, is very relevant. It's relevant because they're going to grow up into a society in which corporate power is is really immense, that there's a lot of corporate power and that corporations do have many of the same rights as individuals. How does that affect people? Well, it affects people in a variety of ways. A recent example comes out of a Supreme Court case from two years ago called Masterpiece Cake Shop. This was a case involving a bakery that refused to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. So The case wasn't really about the baker. It was really about the bakery his store, his company, that the owner did not want to serve LGBT customers, at least when it came to wedding cakes. And so if you want to understand today why a business might be able to discriminate against you just simply because of your sexual orientation, my book really speaks to that. If you're someone who's really interested in politics and wants to know why it's very difficult for we, the people, to exert our rights and to get laws passed that we want that will help us. Part of the reason is because our political system is, is one in which corporations exert a tremendous amount of influence and power. And as a result, the law often gets skewed to benefit them. Adam,
0: is there a type of person who you would say, if they're listening to this podcast right now, they probably shouldn't? pursue the law. And let me clarify, I remember back when I was an undergrad, I did take a constitutional law class. And I remember being inundated with all of the different cases I had to memorize. And I had to write the case law and the holding and all of this stuff and memorize it. And it's not easy. To do that, there are some people for whom that's super easy to do. They can recall all these cases. And even though in today's day and age you can Google things the way you couldn't do when you and I were in school, what do you think would be red flags to you that you would say this kind of person probably would not find the law enjoyable because they would be struggling too much?
1: As a general, and this probably counts for almost any profession, you know, there are some people out there who don't really want to work very hard. And if you don't, if you're the kind of person who doesn't work very hard, being, going to law school is not a good idea because law school is a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount, like you say, of memorization, but not just memorization. Really, it's about work effort. And so there are some people who generally don't want to do that kind of work. Some people who don't feel that intellectually they can, they want to have an intellectual job. Some people want to do work, more work with their hands. You know, being a lawyer is, you know, you end the day with very soft hands as they say, right? No calluses or anything like that. It's really about intellectual rigor and intellectual effort. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy, but it's energy of the mind, not of the body. Okay, fair enough. So
0: your first book is entitled Gunfight: The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. It was published in 2011 and you made the case for why guns And not the other big wedge issues, whether it's abortion or race or religion, are actually at the heart of this country's cultural divide. Do you feel it's still relevant today?
1: Oh, there's no doubt the gun debate really has taken off recent years, much more so, much more active debate than we had when I published my book in two thousand and eleven, for instance, or really at the beginning of a presidential race for twenty twenty, and virtually all the Democratic contenders are taking strong stands in favor of new and sometimes quite raw and innovative forms of gun control. And I think my book, which was designed to show that Americans have a right to bear arms, but also have a long history of regulating that right to pursue public safety, that book remains still relevant. And indeed, although my subsequent book, We the Corporations, was fortunate enough to receive some of those accolades that you mentioned early on, the reporters still call me to interview me about the gun book and gun policy much more often.
0: Isn't that interesting? What do you think it'll take to get real gun control legislation passed? on the Hill, and then signed by a president, clearly not the current president, but at some point with a
1: new person in the White House? Well, I think the most important thing that needs to happen, and I think it's starting to happen now, is there needs to be a stronger gun control movement in America. We've had gun control organizations, and we've had Lots of polling showing that people support gun control. What we haven't had is a lot of what you might think of as single-issue pro-gun control voters. There are a lot of single-issue pro-gun voters in America. That is to say, people who the NRA persuades to vote for particular candidates because of their position on guns, without regard almost to any other issue. I think for many people who support gun rights and oppose gun control, guns are the issue that they base their vote on time and time again. Whereas for many people who support gun control, gun safety regulation is just one of many issues that they look at in considering candidates, and it is rarely the most important issue that they look at. I think as we start to see more and more single-issue pro-gun control voters, that will be a much more effective political check on the NRA than just about anything else.
0: Adam, I'd like to flash back to when you were in college. You got a BA from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Now, the School of Foreign Service, for those who aren't familiar with it, is often a pipeline for graduates to go into the U.S. State Department. You clearly didn't do that. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Adam?
1: When I first went into the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, I was convinced that I did want to be a Foreign Service officer, that I wanted to to live abroad, to be an American in Paris, if you will, or some other part of the country and to do intelligence work. You know, we might think of spies as James Bond, but, you know, the truth is is most intelligence work is a bunch of nerds sitting in rooms analyzing newspapers and communications and television shows, much more so than going to the casino in a tuxedo and and finding some villain that you managed to beat in poker as a metaphor for your little battle. And so I really wanted to be an intelligence analyst in the State Department. But by the time I graduated Georgetown, I had spent some time in college living abroad, That was a turning point for me. When I was in school, I did live abroad for a year and I lived in Paris. And I remember at the end of my year in Paris thinking, I just really want to return to Los Angeles. I want to live my life in LA and in the United States. And if you want to live your life in the United States, foreign service is not. And so I began (laughs) to look for other options.
0: And so what was your first job after you graduated?
1: I had some jobs, but they were summer jobs. I was one of those people who made what I think is a mistake. And that is, I went immediately from undergraduate directly into graduate school. So I finished my undergraduate degree in the spring of 1990 and then started in the fall of 1990 at NYU Law School. And I think that's a mistake. I wish I had taken some time to go do some work, to go get a real job for a while. I had had summer jobs, but that's not really quite the same. I think you learn so much being out in the real world about how to manage your time, how to interact with others, So I made a mistake that I always advise people not to make, although, of course, I can't be dissatisfied with the ultimate path that it's brought me on.
0: That's a relief. (laughs) What about when you were at Georgetown? What extracurriculars, if any, were you involved in or part-time jobs or internships that, in hindsight you came to realize actually helped you to hone skills that proved to be useful when you got out into the working world.
1: Perhaps the most important was that I took an internship while I was at Georgetown with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. And I went to go work for the U.S. Attorney's Office just as an intern. And I ended up working on some very, very big criminal prosecutions and criminal cases. And I got to see how prosecutors went about trying a case, bringing a case to trial, investigating it, bringing the charges, all the motions that have to be made in court and the practice. It's a lot that happens in a courtroom before a trial occurs to set the stage, a lot of disputes that have to be resolved and whatnot. And I remember just being engaged in that process and finding it fascinating. And I think looking back, it was a job I took just because I was looking for an internship and it sounded like an interesting one but it was one that opened my eyes to a world that I hadn't really quite seen before. And I think when I did go to law school, ultimately, my goal then was to become a prosecutor, to become one of those U.S. attorneys that I had worked for, because they seemed like very happy people who were doing really interesting, engaging work and trying to make the world a slightly better place.
0: And so when did you change your mind? Did you work in a prosecutor's office, either during law school or after you graduated or after you got your master's in political science from UCLA?
1: No, I never worked again in a prosecutor's office. And it was when I was in law school, I'm still thinking maybe I would become a prosecutor when I graduated, but I wasn't certain. And I think so much of one's career can be the result of happenstance. So it just so turned out that the person who I became best friends with in law school was someone who wanted to be a professor. We spent a lot of time talking about what his life would be like as a professor. And through my interactions with him and then falling in love with my law school classes and then doing a little bit of scholarship when I was on law review, at law school, it really developed a taste in my mouth to become a law professor. And so when I graduated, the decision tree for me, as artificially limited as it was, I saw as being, I can either go become a law professor or become an entertainment lawyer. And so I said, well, geez, I really don't want to be an entertainment lawyer at the end of the day. So I decided to go pursue becoming a professor. I think had I not met that one individual when I was in law school and become good friends with him, I probably would have never even considered it.
0: You know, you call it happenstance. I say it's serendipity. And I think that is such an important point, Adam, because it seems really scary. When you're in college, probably even when you're in law school or graduate school, when it comes time to like, Oh my God. Now, what am I going to do with my life? And what we don't think about or surface as much with our young people when they're going through it is the idea that there are intangibles that happen. And if you're open to them, they can help lead you in addition to your own interests that you may have uncovered in different classes or extracurriculars or
1: internships,
0: what your next step should be.
1: I think that's a great insight and that's really important. I think that I encourage with my own daughter who's sixteen and she spends time worrying about, Well, what will I do? What should I study in college? What's what's the career that I want? And I say, Well, you know, it's good to be directed in the sense that if you have something you're really passionate about, go pursue that and go pursue the education you need to do it. But even in doing that, what you want to do is be open to the opportunities that present themselves and open your eyes to the different things that'll come around. But I think when, when I look back at it, I say You know, when I was a kid, I just didn't know all the jobs that were out there. I didn't know the different careers you could have. You know, if it wasn't a professional athlete or a lawyer on television or a police officer or a doctor or a nurse, I didn't really understand it, and I think the world is filled with jobs that no school kid really learns much about, but can really provide a fascinating career that's intellectually stimulating and engaging. I also think it's important not to get locked down in your own mythology about yourself. I was not a very good student in elementary school for my first couple of years of high school. I was not interested in school. I didn't find it engaging. If you talk to people who knew me then and said, hey, Adam Winkler became a professor, some of them would have expressed extreme shock at the idea that I ended up where I ended up. And I think that's fair, but I had to overcome that. One of the important things I did was decide I'm not going to let my early definition of myself as someone who's not good at school or in the educational environment limit my opportunities. And so you have to be willing to sort of wipe off your glasses and take a second look at how things are going and even your own mythology. You might think you know yourself, but you may surprise yourself too.
0: Yes. And we evolve. We continue to evolve. And there are those happenstance meetings and things, both good and bad, that happen in our lives that we have no window into until they happen. And I can say a couple of things. One, in my own life, Adam, I too thought I was going to go into the Foreign Service. I studied political science and Chinese. And When I graduated, I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps. In August of 1985, something happened. I learned that there had been a number of rapes of American women in Nepal. So I ended up not going. All of a sudden, my whole plan for the next two years was turned upside down. A friend of my parents happened to be visiting very soon thereafter. And he had just come from New York. And he said, oh, there's this woman, Virginia Kamsky and she only hires young women who speak Chinese. She has a business in China. I said, I'm not interested in business. Parents said, just go interview for the job. So I did. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane flying to Beijing. I lived in Beijing for six months, and it was while I was there that I decided I really wanted to be a journalist because all of my friends were journalists. The second thing I wanted to say is that It is exactly because of your daughter and because of our young listeners and my son, who happens to be 15, that I created Time for Coffee to expose them to all of these different careers and jobs and life experiences that can help both comfort them, give them ideas and inspire them as to what they may want to do in the early stages of their life and maybe even later in their life. So I have two final questions, Adam. If you could share a time in your professional life when you really struggled, you may have had difficult colleagues, a challenging supervisor. It may have been circumstantial. You may have been working during difficult economic times in this country, whatever it was, how did you persevere? And if you could please share a lesson
1: you may have learned in the process. Well, I think one of the incidents that I always remember as a life-changing moment was when I was in law school, one of the things you typically do is over the two summers that you're in law school, is you go work for a law firm or, or go work in some kind of entry-level law job. And I went to go work for a big firm. And I was very cocky at the time. I thought, you know, I got this job because I'm getting great grades, I go to a good school, and I'm near the top of my class. And, and this, these people at this job will really want me. And I didn't work that hard that summer. I kind of took it for granted that I was going to get a job offer from them. And then at the very end of the summer, they called me to say they weren't going to give me a job offer. That I had failed my trial run. And I remember. The feeling of shame, of, of just being so humbled by the whole experience, and it really shaped my attitudes about how I should think about life and about going forward. You can't go through life thinking you're God's gift to humanity, because you're not. <laughs> and just because you've had success in one area doesn't guarantee that everyone's going to see the, the value that you bring or your merits. And ever since that, that one experience, Really taught me the importance of when given an opportunity, you got to work really hard and you got to act like you you think you're not going to get the job. That the only thing that will win is if you give your 100% best effort. I hadn't done that that summer and I paid for it and I was very embarrassed about it. Every once in a while, by the way, I run into the person who did not give me that job, who turned me down because I hadn't done a good enough job. I'm still a little uncomfortable in that situation. But you know, it's very pleasing to me to be able to have found my work ethic to have found some success later on. But I wouldn't have found that success, I think, had I not had that one lesson of failure.
0: Did you tell that person at any time that, hey, you know, you really taught me an important lesson in my life?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to recognize. You know, I'm sure that person is a little bit embarrassed with me because they turned me down. Probably makes that person feel uncomfortable a little bit too. And that's okay. You know, they were doing their job. And the truth was, I was not doing mine.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that story, Adam. And I can tell you in my own life, I remember I was brought back from being a foreign correspondent. I was the CNN Beijing bureau chief in China. And the president of CNN at the time brought me back to the U.S. to be the State Department correspondent. And I thought I walked on water and nothing I could do would be wrong. And within my first year on the job, I remember I got called into or taken out to breakfast by The DC bureau chief for CNN in Washington, DC. And he shocked the hell out of me because basically he said, You know, your contract is coming up and I think we're only going to renew you for six months. And I got very defensive and said, Well, maybe I don't want to stay. And I left and realized I had made a terrible mistake. No sooner had I walked out of the restaurant and ended up having to eat crow and had my Lawyer called them back and say, No, Andrea is ready to take this on, she's ready to double down. And their feedback to me was super relevant. It was that I wasn't giving enough context in my reporting. And so I spent the next six months reading every book I could get my hands on, doing everything I could to up my game. And they ended up renewing me for another four years. But I learned. Adam, I learned just as you did about the importance of not getting too big for your britches and being humble and working your butt off.
1: You know, uh, it's just such an important lesson. And I think it's especially for those people who have success. I think that sometimes I get law students who have had nothing but A grades all through their education. They come to law school and they expect that that same success is going to happen and they don't really have to do much to make it happen. And that's just not the way to go about it. Got to really put in your 100% effort all the time and to recognize that you have a lot to learn. And if you take the opportunities that are presented to them, you can succeed, but it's going to take a lot of effort on your part.
0: So, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Adam, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I would work harder in college and spend less time socializing and drinking. Not that I ever became an alcoholic, but I thought that part of what I was supposed to be doing in college was have fun. And you want to have a little bit of fun, but I would have worked harder in college. I would have developed closer relationships with mentors. I think I came out of college and my professors didn't really know me very well. And I think that was a a missed opportunity because I, I didn't learn what they had to teach me beyond the course material. And so I would tell young people, go to college, work really hard, spend less time thinking about your social life and things that when you're young, you tend to emphasize, and more time developing relationships with professors and, important with the people who are around you. You know, I think one of the things that most people need in life, maybe less so if you become a law professor, but most people need a network of people. While networking sometimes has a bad connotation, I think it's really an important thing for young people to have a broad network of people who know them, who like them, who can give them jobs or a business in the future or advice and education and use the opportunity in college to try to build up that network, to meet as many people as you can meet, to develop relationships with those people. I think you'll learn a lot more and a lot more opportunities will come your way than if you do like I did, which was, you know, hang out with five or six people week in and week out you know, without really sort of broadening my horizons to meet more professors, develop more relationships, and meet more people, develop more relationships.
0: Well, you and me both, I drank way too much beer and spent way too much time with the same handful of people. Professor Adam Winkler, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Adam's latest book is entitled, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks again for having me. It was a real pleasure.